Oh, it was uh, this rather lovely, rather beautiful uh, singer named Imani. So while listening to the music, I got into the music and was singing, not realising or knowing, he said, around what, five did you say? 5.30 in the morning, my beloved next door neighbour was uh, hearing me singing away. And she, she said at breakfast, she said, I knew one of the songs that you were singing. And I thought, wow, that's impressive. <laughs> she can recognise Christopher singing, and she knows, recognise the song from my dreadful singing. So, it made my day, Laura. <laughs> really cool. <laughs> All right. So, with the day, with the rhythm of the day uh, uh, here, I'd like to start with the reclining and standing and the walking posture with you this morning. So delighted to see on the lawn out there engaged in the practices there. It's precious and it's, and it's really important there. And there is much refinement which can come in those practices. I know most of you here on the gate and sometimes if I walk out, look out at the gate, some people are walking up and down or just on the left, one person doing some standing meditations in the evening and more. With that there is a certain quiet refinement of the being here and the refinement of the being is not so much through the method and technique, this is a little bit like the scaffolding which gives some support and as we feel that support of just walking and just sitting, the methodology, you know, the feet touching the ground, moving the attention through the body, experiencing the breathing, that, that's the scaffolding, that gets a bit less important. And what's more important is the sense of the being in the being. And that uh, quiet resonance and accessibility to just standing and being, just walking and uh, being. And that recognition and allowances for that just allows, as I say, some periods of some real subtlety, not brought about by any willpower, because willpower is not subtle, not even brought about by any strong intention there, but it's more a quiet recognition of the subtlety. <coughs> Buddha's Dharma, and its subtlety itself, notices with us as human beings that at times the intentionality contributes to the activity or to the awareness, and the outcome is some the benefit in this case. So there is some intentionality, that intentionality goes to the object called breath, called body, called standing, walking and reclining. And that has some influence on the event, the quality of the intentionality. We imagine or we think or we believe all activities require 
and intentionality. They don't. They don't. Sometimes the movement of the intention, that is the formation, coming together, collected together, we might say, there, that then becomes the expression of the movement to do, to speak, to stand, to walk, or whatever it might be. There can be an awareness, a recognition, and that awareness and recognition enables and allows the subtlety without the grossness of the intention to touch the subtlety. And the subtlety initially, initially at the outer level is to experience impermanence, experience the arising of ego, to recognize reactivity, all of that uh, um, is a preparation. It's not a consistent um, event which I need to be doing all the time. I do not need to be keep seeing impermanence. I don't need to keep letting go. Um, I do not need to bring more and more intention into the practice. It might be quite valuable and necessary initially, but the being with the subtle with the su- subtlety can let that fade away. Reactivity, I and my ego, and um, impermanence, and so forth. And then the teachings and the awareness with the subtlety, then one turns one's interest and attention to the deathless, to freedom. And this shift from all the good practices that contribute to letting go, what's the point of holding on to anything? If that clinging holding it gets quite out of touch. What's the point of holding on to something which is impermanent and trying to fix it as permanent? What's the point in holding on to life if death is never far away? What's the, the, the point of obsessing about the self if in just a single moment we see the emptiness of it? What's the point in constantly staying in our head all the time, trying to think things through and work out why I'm like this, if the only outcome of that is further thinking through, thinking things and trying to work out why I'm like this, and then doing it again and again and imagining this is going to lead somewhere. So, in the preparations, this is the point here with you, in the preparations, seeing impermanence, watching I and my, seeing our reactivity to whatever it uh, might be, so that that world, 
mind world really. That world can be rather quiet in the being. This then contributes to more subtlety. More subtlety means less involvement, impermanence, the unsatisfactoriness of it, the, uh, the self, I, ego and my. So the subtlety then turns its attention to that which is really profound, which is real, which is true, which is authentic and which can be known. And that's the primary interest here. It's worthwhile, all with the postures, just keeping for a moment with the standing and the uh, uh, walking posture there. One of the benefits, not for everybody, but one of the benefits is the quiet sustaining of it, the, the rhythm of it, and the, the being just engaged in the most ordinary human activity in which the allowance of uh, a presence which is there, that allowance of the presence uh, with there, in the, in the very being itself, the quiet question can arise and as we did with the inquiry yesterday evening it is the asking of a deep question and with the subtlety waiting for the voice waiting for what emerges what is love it's a very extraordinary thing. It is hard for a human being to put it into words. It would be a tragedy to reduce it to a sensation. Not found in just some formula of words. Not minimised down to just a certain kind of sensation in the heart and in the body then the question is what is love? what is truth? it can't be a formula no matter what the prescription is because others will challenge that formula one truth will be up against another truth both claiming to have a truth and both neglect, rejecting the other's truth. So if truth is not in the words, but then a person may say, oh, truth is inexpressible. This is an insult to a human being to hear that. If truth is inaccessible, what's the point of talking? If truth is inaccessible, it's beyond words. What's the point of thinking? What's the point of having concepts? What's the point of an insight or a realisation? Because it's all beyond words. It is to separate the wave from the ocean. We are human beings. Needn't underestimate our remarkable capacity to 
have a sense of the subtlety of the waves of life, the intimacies of life within the being, within each other there. And in our quiet receptivity, allow the precious questions of life, which are answerable, not to reduce our wonderful capacity and say, um, oh, there is only the great unknown. It's all a great mystery. The spiritual one-liners are an insult to your intelligence. To reduce everything to a mystery, to reduce everything to a great unknown. Not a mystery. We can discover, we can realize. So, in our quietness of the being, we raise the a, a question. Nothing about me and my life or the personal, that's all the outer. That's really important and helpful, but it's only as a preparation. We may have a feeling as a human being. We're kind of reasonably well adjusted, reasonably well integrated, getting on our life reasonably well. We have some decent values, and we can explore our, what's missing in our life and what, what we appreciate in our life, and and explore emotional senses and the use of the thought and the mind and the exaggerated use of etc. But as I say, and to repeat, if I may, a little bit, that's just in preparation. It's not to be engaged in, in some kind of perpetual usage. And therefore, the being in its uh, receptivity, you know, and it might be useful, Not with the back to the intention, but it's almost the, the quiet question. What matters? What's significant? What is this freedom, this waking up, this liberation, this immensity, this infinity that the saints and the sages have spoken about for many, many centuries on this planet. And one thing which is in common is they didn't tire of talking about it either. Weren't afraid of the words. Weren't afraid of addressing it. Weren't afraid of saying there's something precious here which can be discovered. And that may emerge for some, for some in a certain word, certain words, a certain language. And it may not. But let's take an interest. I mentioned yesterday the uh, the standing and the uh, and the, uh, the, uh, the walking 
And I told a couple of stories about my uh, mum. <laughs> she was a little eccentric. So in her, in the forest, on the edge of the rainforest, if I may say, in Australia, she came, mid-80s, came on her first retreat. She'd been to, listened to a few talks and she came up on the first retreat. And lots of creatures around and many birds and much, much more. I never saw in the years and the decades, if I may say, a more mindful mum, a more mindful meditator than my mum in the walking. So I watched her and I said, God, extraordinarily mindful. And she said, well, you have to be. She said, every time my foot comes up and moves through the air, I'm just checking if there's a snake <laughs> or a spider or a scorpion or something else. Oh. And then <laughs> one evening, with the inquiry like we did yesterday evening, I you know, give the guidelines, give the outlines, the little old lady is sitting there in the chair in the, in the back of the hall and I said, anybody would like to come? Come and take the seat. And then she, first one, oh gosh, and she got out of the seat and mindfully, slowly, walked up. I didn't expect that she would sit in the full lotus <laughs> of the cushion uh, here. So she came and she sat down here and she said, I have something to say to you all. And I thought arose in my mind, look mum, this is an inquiry. It's Bad enough, one family of the member doing a lot of talking, and they, they, they don't want to hear another, another one. And then she, she said, this is my first retreat. I want to know what Christopher is up to. I thought I'd better come and see for myself uh, there. And I've been listening to him for these last couple of days. Now he's invited us up anyone to come up and speak and I thought well I want to come up I have a few things to say there she said just because he's my son you know I don't agree with everything he's telling you <laughs> and uh, she said I also want you all to know one thing she said I am a practicing Roman Catholic I'm just a Buddhist you know no, 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 I'm a practicing Roman, Roman, Roman Catholic. And I wish my son would um, be, become a Catholic again. Uh, and then he could teach this in the Catholic Church as a Catholic, and people would be a lot more interested in it there. And, I, I, then, and then she went on with a couple of other things, and then she smiled, thank you, everybody, and everybody smiled back, and cetera, there. And I said, look, I am a Catholic. I'm a roaming Catholic. I roam around the world and I have Catholic tastes. So I'm a roaming Catholic. 
it's not the same, you know. <laughs> Once in a hall, just one more. Lots of these stories, I love my mom. I gave a talk in the hall, public talk. She's in the hall, sitting at the back of the hall, this lovely, sweet, this old lady. And I said, Any questions? She puts her hand up. Here we go. Sister. When you were a monk in Thailand, you know, eccentric. When you were a monk in Thailand, you wrote and told me you were enlightened. <laughs> I said, No, I didn't. She said, Yes, you did. <laughs> I said, No, I didn't. <laughs> so the people in the hall were like, huh? They didn't know it was my mum. <laughs> and like this. And, and then she said, <clears throat> So this, went, this exchange went back and forth. And I said, I don't find it satisfactory to use this I word and hook it into this word awakening or enlightenment or liberation. This, the emptiness of self, as we heard yesterday uh, evening, is I wrote this, hooking it in an I am this. Whoa. That kind of identity. Whoa. Tread carefully. Tread carefully. There. But she didn't stop there. That's my mum. Then she said, you help a lot of people. I've got my problems. Why can't you help me? <laughs> and then I said, Mum. No, no, it's his mum. Mum, we've spoken about this two or three times. And it's not easy because every time we have a little conversation about some issue for her, her standard response is, I'm your mum. I'm older than you. I know this already. Etc. So it always finished on that. And then marvellously, wonderfully, in a liberating kind of way, one of the people put their hand and said, look, I'm a, I'm a psychologist. I'm a psychotherapist. And I'd just like to say, Mrs. Titmus, that as psychologists and as psychotherapists we know it's very difficult to step into this role in the family situation there because we're only seen as the son or the daughter or the mother or the father or, or whatever so it's very difficult to make that kind of adjustment and so we advise our family members to find a person outside of the family for their therapy and their psychology rather than think that someone in the family can do this. Remember, oh, really? I have been saying this to her for 25 years. And since then, since that moment, and this quiet voice of authority in the hall, not a word. 
for the next 15 or 20 years did she say, why can't you help me, etc. She understood something, you know, she, she got it. And sometimes, I just use it as a small example, we may wish to be a support to the other, the person for a variety of reasons may find it difficult to hear our voice. Can we, sometimes, as I do it sometimes, ask another to be the voice? We wish something to be heard, we regard it as supportive and we might uh, quietly speak to another person. With the stillnesses and with the silences, sitting, walking, uh, standing, there's two aspects to uh, uh, this. The Buddha uses the word seeing and knowing. Very uh, Basati Yanati. Seeing and knowing. So, liberation, wisdom, insight, realization, the deathless. It's all about the seeing and the knowing. I don't know about you, but sometimes. We, in reference to the other or ourselves, I'm just going to the other for the moment, we get the idea that we know somebody because we know their history. We know their childhood perhaps, we know what they did with their life, we know a little bit about their job, what they studied, about their partnerships and relationships, about their lifestyle, etc. And we feel through this and the experiences and the thoughts and what they do, we know the person there. But we know more the history. Seeing and knowing in the Dharma teaching is not so much about the past there is a knowing in which there's a knowing and seeing pasati yanati which is not related to what the person she or he has shared with us about what went before and that sensing of the seeing and the knowing there is a different kind of knowing of the other or the knowing of oneself it's the same, it's the same event in which with that seeing and knowing uh, which takes place there is a deep sense of um, empathy uh, intimacy uh, integration presence and one knows in another kind of way to give an example one of the people who came on a retreat um, a scientist and uh, and I've heard this in various ways um, over the years 
And he said to me that quite regularly he goes to conferences around the world. And at these conferences, you know, there are lectures and there are groups and there are meetings and they might last for a few days like uh, our event here. And he said to me, when I go overseas, you know, to the end of my homeland, to these conferences, I will meet people that I've seen at other conferences. And he said, um, we'll have a conversation. Oh, it's nice to see you. How's your work? How's your family? Are you working on any uh, particular research at the moment, etc., etc.? And they've got to know each other and chat away. He said, when I come on a retreat, I also see people there. And he said, we meet, we immediately hug each other, we're like deep, long-standing friends and we embrace and we hold the embrace and we're happy and smiling and, and something really beautiful in the connection. But it's good. No, and the, then the scientist said, I even, didn't even have a conversation with this person. At the end of the retreat, I might have said a word or two or not. So there's something in the silence and in the being and in the seeing and knowing brings a precious deep closeness and it doesn't seem to be based on the activities of the self in the past. This we're deeply interested in. same can be discovered and sensed with the trees and the plants and what's around us. Of course it's, even, even here some of you have known for, for, for years and uh, beloved good friends and it occurs to myself as well there I might know actually often very, very little about the activities of the past or what the person or persons are doing in the present. Whether if they're in a relationship or not, or if they're working or studying or not, um, whatever, and all the other um, things that make up the person, our, uh, make up our lives. So, in, in spite of not knowing a great deal about and uh, not having the information with regard to the old, there is a resonance, and that resonance is you know, picked up in a kind of wordless way. It didn't need memory didn't need information and the silences and the stillnesses that we find bring another rather precious intimacy 
and there is a seeing and knowing of this. Quite remarkable, we human beings. Let's have a full and authentically rich day. Time now, time now, time now. So, in about 15 minutes, I'll uh, play the music.